Good morning, everybody. Welcome this morning to Lighthouse Bible Church. Let's begin by entering into prayer together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you first of all and praise you for your perfect plan for the human race by sending your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, born of a woman, remaining God in the flesh. And he went to the cross and died for our sins. And then he was buried and then... On the third day, you raise him from the dead so that whoever simply believes in the good news about Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, will never perish but have eternal life. Father, this morning we also pray for the family and friends of Candace Lehman. We pray, Father, that uh, they may be comforted in this time of grief and loss. And we also pray, Father, that the service today will be edifying and, uh, com- and comforting for all who are here. We also do, Father, this morning, want to pray for Cheryl Javris, who lost her son, Ian. Um, we just pray again for her comfort and for uh, those around her to rally around her and, uh, and have com- compassion and assistance to her at this time. And we also, Father, just want to ask for the Holy Spirit to guide and direct everything going on today. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. Good morning again, everybody. We have a couple of announcements for you before we begin our service today. Um, As I mentioned in the prayer, we will be having a memorial service for Candace Lehman today at the end of our regular Sunday service. Encourage everybody to stay as a way of honoring her and her life and her family. We do have her family and friends here today. Um, um, They sure would appreciate it if we could all be here to support them in their time of grief. So uh, just uh, also, please keep the family and, and friends in prayer, as they will need that in the coming days. And speaking of prayer, I ask that you all pray for Cheryl Jarvis. She's the one who sits in the middle here, and uh, she lost her son, Ian, um, on Sunday. So please keep her in prayer, as again, she's grieving too at this time. As, you, as many of you know, we do uh, support different missionary organizations, and this month we're going to talk about basic training Bible ministries. As many of you know, basic training Bible ministries is led by Gene and Nan Cunningham, and uh, they've been doing this a long time. And, uh, you know, we, we have to pray, by the way, that we get the next generation of evangelists so that the work can continue um, that these men and women have done for a long, long time. In any event, their mission includes evangelism as well as training pastors and workers, both in remote parts of the world and even here in the United States. Their approach is really three-pronged. The first one is evangelism. They preach the gospel to the lost about the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Redeemer and the Savior through the work of his cross. That's number one. Number two is edification, being building up the believers, particularly the new ones. Uh, it, and the way we grow up as Christians is to continue to learn the Word of God and understand the, the Bible principles and how to implement them in our lives. So that's edification. And then finally, equipping. The saints are to be equipped for the work of service. And so as we grow, we are more and more enabled to serve other people in the body and, and, and all around us. Um, every one of us is given a spiritual gift for a different role in the body, and they really feature that and develop that in the people that they're ministering to. And they understand that that fellowship in the local church, as well as prayer, giving, and service, are all a part of this life that we're involved in. 
So again, it's to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. That's their focus. By proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We ask you to keep them in prayer. We also ask you to support them. And uh, hope that they can go for many more years. They do, of course, need financial support. Because as a grace ministry, they don't, they don't force people to give. They don't have pledges. None of that. It's just graciousness. When, when people want to support what they're doing, then they're free to give. And that's the way, by the way, that's the way we work too. And it's really the only way to really work because that's what the Bible tells us we should do. So in any event, please keep that in prayer as well. Uh, one final thing. This Thursday, we will not be having Bible study. We will not be having Bible study. My son's graduating from high school and he has the baccalaureate service, which he has a role in apparently. So... Daddy got to be there, so and I will be. So no Bible study this Thursday. All right, let's begin today. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and today's title comes from that. And the title is A Spectacle to the World. A Spectacle to the World. We'll see more about what that is and why it is that Paul brings it up in this section of the book of 1 Corinthians where he is chastising the church there for their divisions and rivalries. I'd like you to turn at this time to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. By the way, I always ask this. If anybody does need a Bible, that's just raise your hand now, and uh, Jack or Aaron will get you one. Um, you don't have to, but we make that offer, just if you'd like to have a Bible in front of you. Um, I'll be reading all the passages as well. So 1 Corinthians 4, 6 to 13. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos, For your sakes, so that in us you might learn not to exceed, go beyond, exaggerate yourself beyond what is written. So none of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For after all, who regards any of you to be superior than the others? What do you have that you haven't received? Do you have great gifts just because you've received them from the Lord? And since you did receive them, why do you boast? as if you had not received it, but rather you produced it. You are already filled. You've already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish you had become kings, so that we also might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us, apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We're fools for Christ's sake, You are prudent in Christ. We are weak. You are strong. You're distinguished, yet we are without honor. To this present hour, up to the present day, when Paul was writing this letter in Ephesus to be sent to the Corinthians, he said, to this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed. We are roughly treated and are homeless. And by the way, I just put this in at the very beginning. That's the description of what many, many Christians have to go through to stand up for their faith. We, we, we are the, under the misconception, especially in the United States, that, you know, once we become a Christian, all our problems are gone. Well, well that's absolutely, that's not true for anybody, and it's especially not true for Christians. You know, we're going to go through trials, maybe not these, but others, as we stand up for what we believe. So again, to this present hour, we're both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed, roughly treated, and are homeless. Thinking of my friend Keith, well, Keithian too, and Kingsley, um, who have a real struggle to support their families because they're working for the Lord. And we toil, working with our own hands. 
When we are reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Here in chapter 4, Paul's wrapping up this section of the letter. It takes four chapters. I want you to think about this. It takes four chapters to hammer home one simple principle to the Corinthians. And that is this. Let no one boast in men. Any men. Yourselves, the people that you're picking as leaders over and against other ones. Don't boast in men under any circumstances. That he who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And they needed to learn that. Took four chapters where he repeated it. They were so thick-headed about this. They were so arrogant that Paul had to dedicate four chapters to repeat this one message over and over again. All kinds of different ways, as we'll see this morning. And by the way, you've been with us and you're sitting here today saying, you know what? Didn't they already pretty much say the same thing several times already that we're reading today? Yes, he did. And by the way, if you're now getting bored with that message, you know what that means, don't you? It means you too probably need to hear it a few more times. That's the way it works. We need to let this word dwell deeply in our hearts so that we change. So that we're no longer dominated by rivalry and arrogance and thinking we're better than others. But we're able to rise above any of that and simply love one another. Simply love one another. Another simple message. But it takes years and years and years and years to understand the implications of what it means to love like Christ loved us. Well, Paul understood God is the one who said that the wisdom of this world, which the Corinthians were all about, what this world has to offer, how this world says you can solve your problems and all of that. But God says that's foolishness to him. In fact, he also says that my foolishness is wiser than any man's wisdom. In the last section, though, which we're on now, Paul turns from what he's been doing so far, which is he gives general principles, like the one we just saw. Let no one boast in men. That's a general principle. In other words, he's not mentioning particular people. He's giving a general principle. And if you recall, especially in chapter 3, he's using figurative language. In other words, he's using one thing to stand for another. He he talked about um, planters, right? And, and waterers. Well, he didn't name names, you see. But now, in this section, chapter 4, he changes to speak plainly and directly to the church at Corinth. This is true throughout chapter 4. We saw that starting last week. But what's the big picture of this section, chapter 4, 6 through 13? Well, Paul's basically telling the Corinthians that they're completely messed up in their thinking. Can we relate to that with ourselves sometimes? Don't you find that your your thinking is muddled a lot, that you you don't quite get it in certain areas? Even here, you know, you hear something, but then you go back out in your life, and then then sort of it seems contradictory between what you're hearing and how you actually think when you're on the job and with family and so forth, and then what you're learning here. You see? So they, but the Corinthians were among the worst when it came to being messed up. Most of what they thought about themselves and their leaders turned out to be, in every respect, the exact opposite of the truth. The absolute opposite of the truth. We've seen that already. 
We've seen that, they, that the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. Since they were all about the wisdom of the world, that was actually the opposite of the true situation. And we're going to see a lot more of that today in this section of the letter. So if you had to boil it all down, he was telling them that they were, in one word, delusional. Delusional. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever been around somebody who is truly delusional, you know how hard it is to get through to that person. Right? Usually, whoa, that's loud. Usually they're delusional about themselves. They think way more highly of themselves than they ought to think. And it's really hard to get them off of that self-mountaintop. But that's what they were. They were delusional. They thought that they were the wise, strong, and noble ones. But we've already seen that among that congregation, there were not many at all who were wise. Not many at all who were mighty or noble. And the thing is, anyway, what they mean by wise is the opposite of what God considers true wisdom to be. And isn't that true today? God considers true wisdom to think like Christ does. Right? What is that? To lay down your life for the sake of the brethren. That is completely opposite to what you'll hear in the world, especially now, my gosh. I'm always picking on commercials, but it's because they are the reflection of what people actually want to think and what people want people to think. And I don't know, but I notice these things, they stick like, out like a sore thumb, maybe because I'm in the Word a lot, but in any event, it's all about you. Hey, it's time for your next vacation. Oh, yes, why? Because you're so great, you need five a year, don't you know that? And that's just one example, that's one I happened to see yesterday. Now, don't get me wrong, there's nothing at all wrong with vacations, and many times we do need them, but the point is the mental attitude, that somehow I'm more deserving of this than other people are because, you know, I'm me. Well, that's the message of the world, and that's the opposite of the message of the, of the cross, and we'll get into that. The understanding that they had of who is mighty, and think about it, the understanding of the world about who is really mighty and powerful is completely wrong in God's eyes. What we see to be powerful and manly even and all of that is the opposite of what God sees. We, we, we see people who are you know, so-called at the top of their game. We see men who are alpha males who can put it all over on other people and we want leaders who are bombastic and and strong, and all of that. And yet, what does God say about true manhood? It's really simple. Just look at His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who when He was on the cross would say nothing bad about anybody. And He was on the cross. You see, the so-called mighty people were the ones that put Him there, and the ones that were nailing His hands to the tree. Those were the ones that the world saw. Wow, the Roman army, that's power. And of course, the greatest power that was ever displayed in the universe was displayed in the body of Jesus Christ on the cross where all our sins were poured into Him. That was the greatest power. And then the the power was again when when God raised Him from the dead. Now that's power. And yet none of that is what the world thinks. It's completely wrong in God's eyes. Not only that, but their view of nobility had nothing in common with the real thing. Nothing at all. You know, Jesus Christ said, He who would be the The leader among you must be the servant of all. That's not what the world says. They said that he who was going to be the leader, he or she who is royalty, should lord it all over everybody else. They should get 
the greatest castle, they should get the greatest place to live. You know, it's true. They're the noble ones, you know. That's the opposite of how God thinks. You're noble when you lay down your life for other people in God's eyes. You're noble when you don't think of your own interests, but rather the interests of others. That's nobility in God's eyes. Totally opposite to the world. Because the world, like the Corinthians, is delusional. Please turn to Romans chapter 12, verse 3 to see more of this. Romans 12, 3. Romans 12, 3. This is the message that the Corinthians needed to hear and what most people need to hear again and again and again. I need to hear it. You do need to hear it. The, the person that you look up to the most in the Christian way of life needs to hear it. And that's this. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. There's the problem. There's a Greek word for this. I won't go into all the Greek, but when you're arrogant, you know how we say puffed up, right? We say, well, that's literally what the word means. It means that their head is full of smoke. <laughs> that's a great image, you know? Why? Because their head is way too big. You know, I don't know what, what they talk about today, but when I was growing up, when somebody had to see a psychiatrist, they called that guy or woman a shrink. And I never understood, I never knew what that was until I was much older. It was the, day, the people that are, you know, having confusion and all that usually have their heads too big and they need them shrunk. You know, you know what I mean? No, the world's not going to end if you don't, you know, if you don't step out and do all the 18 things you're supposed to do. Actually, the world will do just fine. We, we, we continually need to check, not check, but understand that we need our heads shrunk. And that will be the solution. We'll be happier than ever when that happens. Through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. We all want sound judgment, but most people don't know where to get it. And the fact of the matter is, if you were to track what supposed sound judgment looked like in the world... I'll tell you, it'll change all the time. It'll change all the time. I illustrated that last week with Americans' attitude toward the war in Iraq. My gosh, on day one, everybody was in favor of it. Now, everybody said it was a mistake. Well, that's because we're, we're fickable, fick, fickable, fickle, changeable. You know, the, the, we, our judgment isn't always that good. Amen? Amen. I'll amen myself. The place to get sound judgment is the thinking of Jesus Christ in the Bible. You Learn what's in here about how to think, and you will have sound judgment. You will. You'll be able to see things clearly. You'll be able to, you know, evaluate yourself in certain circumstances because you go to the Word of God and you say, I'm going to let that thinking change. I do that all the time. I'm not bragging because I have to do it all. I'm actually the opposite of bragging. My thoughts are wrong, especially the first thoughts I have about somebody. Don't, don't run away from me now if you've never met me, but it's true. Why? Because my flesh leads. You know, the, my sinfulness is first um, at, the, at the race, so to speak. They show up, it shows up early, my flesh. And so what do you do? Well, you realize that for what it is, and then you just move on. Now, you know what? Lord, help me to think like you in this situation. And by the way, that works. And the key to it again, it's real simple. I keep telling people all the time, 
I'm getting real simple in my old age. You know what the, what the cure to all of that is? One word. And it's not delusion. It's love. You can rise above your fleshly negativity, selfishness, and all of that by simply loving. Right? Loving people if the issue is people. Understanding how much God loves you if the, if the issue is yourself. It's all about love. And it can be that way because the justice of God was satisfied when Christ died for us. But unfortunately, the Corinthians don't have sound judgment at this time. They are living in a fantasy world. They're living in their own private Idaho. Shows you how old I am. I remember those lyrics. They're living in their personal Disney world. You know what I mean? Even according to the world's standards, though, they're so impressed with it, but the world doesn't think they're kings at all. It's literally all in their head. It's literally all in their head. So Paul's now going to set them straight, or at least try to. He's going to remind them about the scriptures he's already given them. Now, at the time Paul's writing 1 Corinthians, now the Bible wasn't finished yet. As a matter of fact, when he says scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. And we've seen already that he has cited the Old Testament several times. And we're going to see them today, all of them. They're going to have a theme. They're going to have an emphasis. And it'll be unmistakable when we just look at them all together. He puts them in their place by reminding them where their blessings really come from. Not from them. I always tell people, when, people, when, I, when I'm dealing with something hot or I'm losing something or whatever that might be, I always tell people, listen, don't feel bad for me. I'm in good shape relative to when I was born. When I was born, I was naked, homeless, and penniless. And by the way, so were you. Unless you had a big inheritance. And even then, they didn't give it to you for another 18 years. Yeah, so I'm, so I'm looking at my life now, and I'm like, not penniless, not naked, most of the time. And uh, what's the other one? Naked, oh, yeah, I'm not definitely not homeless. Yeah. So uh, things are looking up. But the key is to be grateful. Be grateful. If you want to be happier in your life today, right now, all you got to do is take two minutes and think about things you're grateful for. Think about things you're grateful for. My son is going into the military. And there's a big part of me that wants to, you know, be emotional and sad. And I'm going to be that way, trust me. But then there's another thing I look at and I say, I am so grateful for this about him, this about him. This, what God has done, what God has done, what God has done. And I'm happy again. It works. But what Paul's going to do, actually, is he's now, and you've seen this in the, in the section we already read together, he's going to go right down and do a point-by-point point comparison between the Corinthians and the apostles. Okay? And if you think about it, now we today think of the apostles as, you know, slamming, amazing, and all of that. But remember the description of what they looked like. At the time Paul was writing, homeless and, and put down and condemned to death. And he's comparing that with the Corinthians who weren't suffering at all. And by human standards, people are going to say, wow, look at those Corinthians. They're blessed. Look at these apostles. There's something wrong with them. And Paul's going to use that to eventually really shame them in how wrong their thinking is. Along the way, he's going to use biting sarcasm. In other words, he's going to say something that clearly isn't true and then hope they get the point. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yes, you are so smart. Well, do I mean that? 
When I say that, you are so smart. You have it so much over me. That's sarcasm. And he's going to use that. So, you, so there's times when you have to, by the way, understand that and not always take literally. In other words, in the sense of if he's using sarcasm, what he's saying isn't true. So if he says, you guys are kings, he's not saying that. He's saying, you guys are the opposite. And we'll see some of that. All you got to do is put yourself, put yourself up to a mirror and have Jesus Christ sit next to you and you'll see all the flaws. And that's okay, because that's why he came. I've been telling people, if we were perfect, we wouldn't need a Savior now, would we? All right. He's going to reveal in this section who's really living according to the mind of Christ, according to the word of the cross. And who, on the other hand, is trying to avoid all the implications of the cross. The cross is stark. If you, if you, if you look at it, you can't help but be shocked and be changed by, wait a minute, the worst kind of death that just about that mankind ever came up with to kill somebody. God's son in the flesh died that death for you. If you look at that square on, it'll change everything about your understanding of this world and about you. They didn't want to do that. They didn't want to do that. They want to avoid the implications of the cross of Jesus Christ. Some were laid... When you look at these two groups, there was one group laying down their lives for the brethren, and there was another group that was not at all, in fact, doing the absolute opposite. All right, with that as an overview now, let's go through the passage verse by verse. Let's go back to verse 6. I'll read it again, and we'll talk about it a little. 1 Corinthians 4, 6-7. See, I'm easy on you. Romans 12 is pretty much near the end. And then we're in 1 Corinthians, the very next book. Probably like 10 pages away. Maybe less if you're young and you have that small print Bible. You know, my Bibles are getting bigger and bigger. You know, pretty soon they're going to be like, let's read from 1 Corinthians. And I'll be like, Shh, like the old parchments. My son, on the other hand, getting a Bible to bring in boot camp. And they have to, they got to pack everything in one of these duffel bags slash, you know, backpacks. So I'm finding him a Bible that's like about that big. You know, and he'll be fine. You know, the seven print, whatever it is, fine, yeah. All right, 1 Corinthians 4, 6. Now these things, brethren, I figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. If you really take in what the Bible says about us, you will not exceed that in your understanding of yourself and the people you admire. If you understand the true nature of what the Bible says about human nature, then you cannot continue to think more highly of yourself than you ought to. So he says to them, that's the solution to not being arrogant and thinking you're better than others. For who regards you as superior other than yourself? What do you have that you have not received? And if you did receive it, which you did, why do you boast as if you had not received it? People do that. You know, people, people, uh, in their life, they're, they're... thank you, Mark. Let's give him a hand. Are we on? All right. Well, and that's the message for today, everybody. I'm teasing the people on the internet. No, I didn't say I did. I went off the message as soon as we lost sound, so we're back.
or back. So again, we're, we're looking at uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 6-7. And we've seen that he said, you have not received any, you, have not have, you don't have anything that you haven't received. That's true of us. And he says, since you did receive it, why are you boasting? It's like I said, kids, kids that land on third base because of their parents and they think they hit a triple. You know what I'm saying? I'm saying that wrong, but in any event. In other words, people think that, oh, because such and such, then it's all about me, I earned it. Let me tell you something. I don't care what you have. I don't care how successful you are. I don't care how many degrees you have. I'll guarantee you that if you look back honestly, you will find out that at the right time, the Lord did something in your life to enable you. If you went to Harvard University, okay, well, guess what? If your parents hadn't been able to afford you going to that university, you wouldn't have been able to do it. If you, had, if you had gotten a serious illness, you wouldn't have been able to go there. And yet the Lord took care of that for you. So why we boast about those kind of things when we just received it all from the Lord? He's telling them a simple message again and again. Don't be arrogant. Stop boasting about yourselves. And again, we need to take that to heart too. Somehow we think if we're boasting about ourselves, then we'll, it will like improve things and people will think more highly of ourselves. That's our strategy. But, even, but people can see through that, by the way. The only one you're, you're really fooling is yourself. People can see that. People don't like boasters, by the way. People would much rather have listeners. It's like I tell uh, about being a parent, you know. Kids really desperate for role models. Because they have enough critics in their life. You see, they just flip things around. Flip things around. And what's that? Love. Boasting about yourself means you love yourself more than others. Christianity means love one another as Christ has loved you. It's the opposite. Well, again, he's been using figures back earlier in the letter. When he talked about ministers and leaders, he used words like planters and waterers. He was illustrating generally, and he wasn't using names. He said architects and builders, general principles. The only names that he used were of himself and Apollos. And the reason he did that was because there was no hint of competition between the two of them. They were working together. And his point in using themselves as an example was to say, look, uh, rather than me point the finger at you right now, I'm going to give you an example of how it looks when it's right. And then hopefully you'll get the message. Oh, wait a minute, we haven't been doing that at all. All right. So, so he changed the names to protect the guilty, not the innocent. You know, names were changed to protect the innocent. But here, Paul changes the names to himself and Apollos to protect the guilty leaders in Corinth that were really the problem. Because the real conflicts were inside the church. Men were choosing sides rather than playing on the same team. All along, the message has been about them. Maybe they weren't too quick to pick up on that, but that's a fact. Paul was hoping that when they saw how he and Apollos were were working together, they would see how wrong they were in their behavior and make the right changes. The Bible here says they were exceeding what is written. What does that mean? It means they were pumping themselves up way beyond a proper understanding of who they are in their flesh anyway. They did the same thing with their favorite leaders. 
And in so doing, they were putting down everybody else, the rest of the congregation. They were never told to do that in the Bible. They exceeded what is written. As it were, they were painting outside the lines that God has given as a proper understanding of men in His Word. They had a totally inflated understanding of the true nature of man. Do you? Do I? Do we rely too much on people? Do we look at our country and say, if only we had the right people, we would be so really great off? Well, actually, you know what the truth is? If only people understood who the right God is, then our country would be better off. That's really what's going on out there. So in any event, we need to understand the true nature of men. Jesus said he wasn't trusting in men because he knew what was in them. (laughs) Do you? Do you have like a positive view? Oh, mankind is basically good. We've got a few flaws. But if we only got everybody educated, man, everything would be fine. Do you believe that? Oh, good. (laughs) It's not true. I often use the illustration of 9-11. And the people that, that flew those planes into those buildings were the, were the best off, best educated in their communities. So no, education doesn't fix things. Not, not when it comes to the true nature of man. So again, what is written refers here to the Old Testament passages that Paul has been quoting. And I want to go through them together so you can see about what, is there a theme Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 1.19. This is the first time he quoted the Old Testament in this letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1.19. When he says, do not exceed what is written, this is what is written. 1 Corinthians 1.19. For it is written. See, I'm no genius. I just find out where it says it is written. When he says, don't exceed what is written, he's saying, don't exceed this. So don't, don't think more highly of me than you ought. It's like, I'm, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the cleverness of the clever, I, the Lord, will set aside. Okay, go forward a few verses to chapter 1, verse 31. 131. So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You think you're wise according to the world's point of view? You think you're really clever? Please understand that the Lord will destroy that wisdom and He'll destroy that cleverness. He'll set it aside so that let anyone who boasts, boast in the Lord, not in themselves. 1 Corinthians 2.9. Go forward a few verses again. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, which ear has not heard. You see, The Corinthians were going according to man's standards, which is, wow, look at how handsome he is. Listen to how how his language and his rhetoric is just so wonderful. They were going according to what eye saw, ear heard, and what they could think about in their hearts. But God says, the things which eye has never seen, and the ear has never heard, and has never entered the heart of the natural man, all those things God has prepared for those who love him who didn't, didn't bring anything to the party except faith, understood that they were nothing, that they understood why they needed a Savior, and then God said, I'm going to prepare all of this for you. I'm preparing things for the saints that were completely incomprehensible to the human ear, eye, or the heart of mere men. 1 Corinthians 2.16 
This is the next quotation from the Old Testament. For who has known the mind of the Lord that He will instruct Him? You see, this was, this was chastising men in and of themselves. He was saying, who has known the mind of the Lord that He will instruct Him? Because back then, in the Old Testament, they were actually living like they could instruct God. And God didn't quite have it right. When they, when he, when they were going out of Egypt, and they were in the desert, and they felt like they were going to not eat, have enough to eat, or whatever it was, they figured they needed to instruct God. Hey, God, you made a mistake here. Let me teach you about what we, what we need and how great we are and how you're really not treating us right. That's the arrogance of man. Who has known the mind of the Lord that He will instruct him? But here's the amazing thing. We have the mind of Christ. What is He saying there? Well, first of all, He's saying as an apostle, we have been given the thinking of the Lord. And guess what? When we learn that, we, st- we have the same thing. In other words, we're starting to think like Christ thinks. All right. Let no one boast in men. The Lord will destroy the wisdom of the wise. We're seeing a theme. Look at 1 Corinthians 3, 19-20. Mankind with natural eyes, eyes we were born with, physical eyes, natural ears, and our heart, which by the way, the Bible says that our heart is desperately wicked. Do you know what that? Naturally speaking, that's why we have to have a huge renovation project of the mind and the heart when we become believers in Christ. Okay, that heart. So he says none of that. He says, you know what? In your hearts, when you think you're wise and crafty, when you think that you can reason things out and you're superior, let me tell you, for it is written, He, the Lord, is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. In other words, he can see the chink in the armor. He can see the flaw in the argument. See, see, see it's like Abraham Lincoln, though. You see, the, the crafty and the wise think they can fool most of the people all the time. They can't fool God. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise. He knows how they think. He says, that's useless. Useless. So whenever somebody says, I have a PhD, you need to hear what I think. You can turn back to him and say, well, I guess you have not read 1 Corinthians 3, 19-20. They, they may look at you funny. <laughs> oh, Corinth, I know all about Corinth. It was da 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 And I know the Corinthian pillars, what they're all about. So they'd have no idea. Rich Corinthian leather. I don't know if you remember that. I'm, age, I'm dating myself. But 1 Corinthians 3, you know, they need to take that to heart. Let no one boast in men. The Lord is going to destroy all the wisdom of the wise. 1 Corinthians 4.7. Where we are today. 1 Corinthians 4.7. This is the first um, time he brings in that sarcasm I told you about. For who regards you as superior? He's asking a question, but he already knows the answer. What do you have that you have not received? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? He asked him three questions. Who? Basically, who do you think you are? And he says, what? What did you have that you didn't receive from the Lord? And then why? Wait a minute, since you're not superior, and everything you receive from, this, you receive from the Lord, what is there left for you to boast about in yourself? That's what he's saying. Three questions. He's basically saying, what's wrong with you? But he asks three questions. Whoops, I went ahead. Who, what, and why? And the answers are real simple. 
Who beside yourselves thinks that you're better than others? No one. What do you have that you have not received? Nothing. Why do you boast? No good reason. No one, no thing, no how. That's, his, that's what he says about anybody who thinks that they're better than others. That, they, they have, that, that because of how great they are, they have things. No. Not a big X. Cross all of that. Superior. You know, he said, have you forgotten that there are not many wise among you? Or mighty? Or noble? Have you forgotten that I've already shown you you're walking like mere men? There's no difference in how you live to the unbelievers that you look down on now? They received all their blessings from God. And they had many of them. And they, they ought to boast in the Lord. You should boast in the one that was giving you all the blessing. Not yourself that only brought needs to the table. Alright. So here in verses 8 to 13, he's making the same point. Let no one boast in men. But he's looking at it from a different point of view. He's now going to present a series of contrasts between the church and the apostles. This is a needed way to teach people. In other words, you can say, let me just give an example. You can say, wow, you got a 68 on that test. You know, and you say, oh, that's 68. Is that good? And then then they tell you, well, you know, the class average was 97. And then they're like, oh, I'm not so good. That's why comparison can be so effective. It puts people in their place, right? When you compare them, when you compare, well, like it's kind of like in sports, you know, I got to the point where I thought I was pretty good in basketball. Pretty good, and my teammates were too. Until I ran up to ran up ran into this school um, from the south side of town, which is you know the ghetto, and they whipped us like like eighty five to thirty. And then I then I said, you know what? I'm not as good as I thought I was. <laughs> not that good. And so that's what we all have to learn. But he had to do it by saying, "Here are you, and here are the apostles. Let's compare the two head to head." All right. He will be at his most sarcastic when he does it. You'll see that. He will have the most graphic descriptions. Anyone with eyes and ears should get the point. But did they? They needed the right kind of eyes and ears. right? Like the the Jews in the Old Testament. So many of them had eyes but couldn't see and had ears and couldn't hear. He's going to show very simply something that the Lord said. He's going to show that what is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. What is highly esteemed among men, what men and women look up to in the world, the people that have millions of followers on Facebook and Instagram, and how they think is considered detestable in the sight of God. Those are strong language. That's Jesus. And by the way, the opposite is true. What's highly esteemed by God is seen as detestable in the sight of the world. Is there, is there any, any people that are thought of as worse in the United States today than Christians? I'll give you the answer. No. Not anymore. Why? Because the world has gotten where it is, you know. That men who love themselves, lovers of money, and they look upon Christians, and whether they know it or not, and they probably don't, the fact of the matter is that to be a Christian is to understand the cross, and that you died, that Christ died for you. And then that's the last thing they want to look at, remember? 
And so instead, what do they do? They paint caricatures of us. You know, we're the, what's that Bible church that, that has people that pro- protest at the, at the funerals of soldiers? Jonesboro or something like that. doesn't matter. What is it? Yeah, Westboro Baptist, right? That, they take that picture and they apply that to people who are laying down their lives for their brethren. There's nothing more ridiculous, but that's what the world does. What is highly esteemed among God is seen as detestable in the sight of men. It works both ways. And we have to ask, answer the question, which side are we on? Are we on the world's side, how they think? Or are we on God's side, how he thinks? 1 Corinthians 4, 8-13. to You are already filled. You've already become rich. You have become kings in your own mind. Without us, apparently you didn't need us to become all of this. We're just the, you know, those lowly apostles. Indeed, I wish you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. That's the clue, by the way, that this is totally ironic and sarcastic. He doesn't mean a word of it. What he's doing is just parroting what they're saying about themselves, which is, quite frankly, delusional. That's what he's doing here. He's saying, listen, okay, that's what you think. You think you're filled, you got everything you need, you think you're rich, you think that you're kings. And you know, in comparison, the apostles don't look too good. You see, God has put the apostles in the lowest rung of all, as men condemned to death. We have become a spectacle to the world, laughed at, insulted, both the angels, fallen angels and fallen men. We're fools for Christ's sake. You are prudent in Christ. We are weak. You are strong. You're distinguished. We're without honor. To this present hour, we, the apostles, are both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and roughly treated and homeless. How many people would vote for this person to be president of the United States? Somebody who's hungry, thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, and homeless. And yet, these are the apostles who, who built the church. Think about that. God's ways are not man's ways. We work with our own hands. Now, in, I, in our culture today, if you work with your own hands, you're like, you're nothing, right? Even though we have a shortage of people who are talented with their hands in this country. And yet, our standards, our values are the other way around. We toil working with our own hands. We're, when we reviled, we bless. How was the last time you saw a politician do that? When the other side says, man, you guys are evil and rotten and communist. And then they say, bless you. I want nothing but the best for you. By the way, that's what they should be saying. If we were one country and we loved one another, that would be the way we treated one another. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we try to conciliate, reconcile. We have become, as the, because of all that, we've become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Paul is saying to this church, So you think you're already full. You think you're already rich. That that happened fast. You think you're already kings and you did it all without us. Well, that can only mean one thing, Corinthians. You must be more advanced than the apostles. You must be more advanced in wisdom and knowledge and power than we lowly apostles are. Can you see that? Was that sarcasm? Yes, it was. Yeah, he's being sarcastic. He's saying this, you think you're kings, but us? God has placed us on the lowest rung of all. 
We're condemned to death. We're headed for martyrdom. We are a spectacle to the world. We're on display before the fallen angels and fallen men and the powerful, the so-called wise. And yet we're prisoners. We're about to be butchered by a bloodthirsty mob. Fallen angels and fallen men are eagerly anticipating our deaths. In the meantime, they're throwing insults and slander at us. They're even scraping the filth off their sandals and throwing it in our eyes. That's, I know you don't see that, but that's really what he's talking about. That's what he's saying is going on with them. So he's saying to the Corinthians, well, I guess you have a much better standing among those wise and powerful people that are doing that to us. Because you're not facing any of this abuse, are you, Corinthians? In fact, you're not really suffering that much at all, are you? But just one question. What do you think the word of the cross really means? How did Christ redeem you? With his wisdom? With his rhetoric? With his money? No. Through his blood. Through his blood. So actually, doesn't that flip everything upside down, Corinthians? When you think about the Lord, the Son of God, dying for you, then you ought to look at the people who are spectacle, who are looked at as nothings, because they looked at Christ as a worm, the Bible actually says. That's descriptive on the cross. So when you see people being treated the same way because they're standing up for Christ, then you have to understand that they're the ones who understand the wisdom of the cross, not you. The Lord was rich in heaven. He became poor on earth so that through his poverty, we, the human race, believers, might become rich. Corinthians, you say you're full of life and have everything that you need. And yet, what is, what is true about us? Of apostles, you must have it all over us because here's the fact of this present hour. We don't have everything we need. We're not full of life. We're condemned to death. We're hungry and thirsty. We don't have everything we need. We're poorly clothed. We're roughly treated and are homeless. You guys must be, have it all together over us apostles. But the, actually, the truth is, you are delusional. Yeah, two words. Don't boast of men if you do, you're delusional. By the way, they're just like the Laodicean church is going to be in the future. Please turn to Revelation 3.17. Wrap this up today, but I want to show you this. As usual, the Lord nails it. Shouldn't be surprising, He's God in the flesh. But He nails it here when He talks about the Laodiceans. He might have easily been talking about the Corinthians at this time. Be careful when people say all kinds of good things about themselves. When they say it, okay? First of all, their heart is wrong. And secondly, they're probably delusional anyway. You know, usually the people that are bragging about their kids are having the most trouble with their kids. No, and I mean that. The people that have to say a lot about something is because they're insecure. And, and we should have compassion on that. But we shouldn't believe it at face value. But the Lord said this, because you say, I am rich and I have become wealthy. And I have need of nothing. And you do not know. You don't know the truth. You're delusional. You don't know that actually you're wretched and you're miserable and you're poor and you're blind and you're naked. In God's eyes. 
They had nothing that they needed. They needed the blood of Christ. They needed the cross. They needed true wealth, true wisdom. They can only have in Christ. They had things completely backwards. The Corinthians were all wrapped up in appearances. What does God look at? The heart. The heart. How about us? Are we too wrapped up in appearances? Do we, can, do we tend to really, if we're being honest, judge people on, oh, I don't know, maybe how much money they have or the, the clothes they're able to wear or the house that they live in? You know, we feel insecure because their house is bigger than ours. Or do we look at the heart? Do we try to find kindness, gentleness, forgiveness, love, joy, peace? Are those the things we really value in one another? That's the challenge. That's what God cares about. Because let me tell you, whatever they didn't have, these apostles had heart. They had heart. They were, going, they were willing to go to death in order to continue to preach the truth about Jesus Christ. As 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 12, you can go there if you want, but in the interest of time, I'm going to start reading it. Talking about himself, Paul and the other apostles, he said this. We have this treasure. They did. They had the truth that sets that makes people free. They had the words of eternal life. They did. And yet, they had that treasure in earthen vessels. What did that mean? Outside, they didn't look so good. You know, you, somebody, you're, at, you're at somebody's home, and uh, they serve you something in a golden goblet, and you think, man, this is going to be a great drink. Right? And it's vinegar. <laughs> then you're at somebody else's home, and this is really kind of low down, the kind of thing a kid would make in ceramics class, you know. And they say, hey, do you want a drink? You know, and it's the most wonderful thing you ever tasted. That's what he's saying. But it's in earthen vessels. People that don't understand what, what matters is in the heart and in the truth, they're going to miss it. The surpassing greatness of the power, this is why, will be of God and not of ourselves. We're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're not, we're not demolished on the inside. We're perplexed out there, but we're not despairing inside. We're persecuted out there, but we're not forsaken by God. We're struck down, but we'll never be destroyed. We have eternal life. And yet now, we're always carrying about in this body the dying of Jesus, the word of the cross, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body, but not for ourselves. You see, we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. Why? So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Death works in us, but life in you. There's the mind of Christ. Death works in us, but life in you. Our outer man may be decaying, but our inner man is being renewed day by day. And then he says to the Corinthians, how about you? You see, you've been talking about all these things that have to do with the outer man. Riches and wisdom and being treated like kings. Let me tell you something. Your outer man looks great, but right now your inner man is pretty ugly. Why? Because they were full of rivalries and superiority and all those things. Those are in God's eyes and hopefully in ours, ugly. Ugly. We are fools for Christ's sake. We are, you are prudent in Christ. 1 Corinthians 4.10 We're fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. Now we already know that isn't true. We'll see that in a minute. We are weak but you are strong. You are distinguished. But we are without honor. What's Paul doing here? Sarcasm. Now served all day. I love that. 
That's what they, what's he, he's going to have a mouthful of sarcasm for them. They need it. Why? This is why. They said that they were prudent in Christ. They said that they're strong. And yet, we already seen they were infants in Christ. They weren't prudent in Christ at all. This is the sarcasm, the irony. You've got you to pick up on this. You will when you just think about where we've been. Where he said, you're infants in Christ. You're walking like mere men. You're not prudent. You're not strong. He said, but you're distinguished? I don't think so. He said, you're not really wise. You're not mighty. You're not noble. You have hardly any of God's wisdom, power, or character. The apostles knew also that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. That's where they ought to be. God was actually using the very foolishness of these apostles to shame the Corinthians who thought they were so wise. 1 Corinthians 1. Please turn to that now. 27 to 29. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 29. Here's the truth about what God was up to. About his wisdom. About how he understood the difference between the apostles and the Corinthians. Verse, chapter 1, verse 27. God has chosen the foolish things of the world. God chose the life and the persecution and the, and the being condemned to death that the apostles went through. God chose it, make no mistake. The foolish things of this world to the world to shame the so-called wise. God has chosen the weak things, according to the world, homeless and beaten up, to shame the things that are supposedly so strong. God has chosen the base things, not the noble, but the base things, the ones who are seen as the scum of the earth and the despised, the ones who are persecuted and hated. God has chosen. Why? You see, he's chosen the things that are not in the world's eyes so that he may nullify all the things that are, all of those things that people think so highly of, all of the things they're holding on to and grasping, it's going to be the big <clears throat> in God's eyes. Why? Because he likes to toy with people? No. So that no man may boast before God. That's why. The person who is homeless, the person who is, who is persecuted, right? they understand they have nothing to boast about, right? Before anybody. It's the people who are high and mighty on their pedestal. That, have, that think they have something to boast about, even before God. Reminds me of Nebuchadnezzar right before he was struck down and was eating the grass with the cows. He thought he was something when he was nothing. So I hope you see that. He teaches the general principle okay, here in chapter 1. But now in chapter 4, he reveals, you know what? I was talking about the difference between the apostles and you infants in Christ all along. And then finally, if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 4. 12 to 13. He wraps up his dress down of the church in Corinth by showing how the apostles dealt with the persecution and the suffering from the world that the Corinthians so admired. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. This is the mind of Christ, by the way. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. Because we have become as the scum of the earth, the dregs of all things, even until now, this is the mind of Christ. What did he say on the cross when he was being spat at and slapped and beaten? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
That was the mind of the apostles. Love defeats hostility. Suffering can only last for a little while. But wait for the weight of glory that is to come. That's the mind of Christ. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you today for helping us by giving us this opportunity today to hear your word, to soak it all in, to understand that we need the power of the Spirit to change, but the power, he, he, he uses the word of God as the power to do it. And so we are so blessed to be able to hear from your word today. And we do ask, Father, that you would continue to have the Holy Spirit renovate our thinking. And again, this morning, Father, we do want to pray as we close for Cheryl, who was grieving the loss of her son, Ian, and for Candace's family and friends who will be memorializing her in a few minutes this morning. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. (coughs) All right, just a reminder, no Bible study this Thursday. Please stay for the memorial service for Candace. And just one more time, I want to just make sure everybody understands the good news of the gospel. It's really simple. When people try to make it complicated, they make a mess of it. It's really simple. It's something a child can understand. That's what the Lord said. Bring to me the little children. Father, I'm glad that you hid this from the wise and mighty and revealed it to mere children. The gospel is simple. It's real simple. We're all sinners. Kind of obvious. But God didn't leave us there because if he left us there, we would all be condemned under his wrath in the lake of fire. But he said, no, I'm not willing that any, any, any should perish. And so he sent his son, born of a woman, God in the flesh. And Jesus Christ is the son of God. And he went to the cross willingly, died there for all of our sins, was buried to prove that he did physically die, And then on the third day, the most amazing power, God's power, raised him from the dead. That's a miracle that anybody can see and understand. He did that to enable anybody to believe. Whosoever believes in Jesus Christ as our Savior, the one who died for us and was raised from the dead, believe and you will be saved. You will never perish. You will be given eternal life. I pray that anybody here who has maybe not heard that before or is ready now to see the truth about themselves and about the love of God, that you would believe that good news. We don't know what tomorrow brings. So we need to take care of business today. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Again, please stay for the memorial service for Candace and... uh, I just want to again pray once again, Father, that uh, you would comfort the grieving and that you would challenge us as we go about our daily lives to think as you think in your wisdom. We ask again all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. All right. um, We are going to take maybe a five-minute, we're going to take a five-minute interlude here if you need to go to the bathroom or or you need to leave. I'm not making you all stay. You know, I don't feel like I'm doing that. I just think as a loving community, we want to express that love for people that need it. So take five minutes, go to the bathroom, get some coffee, whatever you need to do, so that uh, 20 after, we will convene again with the memorial service for Candace.